Really delighted to have Stephen Cantor with us here today. Um, Dr. Cantor is the Dean of the University of Missouri, Kansas City uh, School of Medicine. He's a professor of biomedical and health informatics, and he holds the Merle and Muriel Hicklin Endowed Chair in Medicine. You could have predicted his success, I think, from seeing him back in high school when he won the Texas State Optimist Club Speech Contest, <laughs> and he was the valedictorian of United High School, where he was. But he went off to Texas A&I, where he was a summa cum uh, graduate in chemistry, before he um, went to medical school at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Um, he did his training as an intern and resident in Gainesville at the University of Florida in neurosurgery, and went on to um, uh, would be a chief resident there, and then joined um, the Scott and White Clinic for a short time before going to the University of Pittsburgh, where he spent a good deal of his career. Among the achievements there, he was the inaugural founder of the Office of Medical Education, and as you will see, his interests, while clinically initially in neurosurgery, moved rapidly into medical education and now into medical administration. He, um, at Pittsburgh, became a vice dean, and it really set him up very well when the selection committee uh, asked Steve to take on the deanship at UMKC. There, one of the things that he had as a skill and one of the things that he wanted to work on, because Pittsburgh is, uh, serves an inner city and UMKC is similarly poised to serve an inner city population and a very interesting coalition of uh, interests around the health care of cities, um, he was selected. And, and what he did and has culminated in a signed letter of, in, uh, of understanding was create a UMKC district, health district now, with multiple hospitals, multiple institutions around health, and really a community focus. If you actually do a little internet search and read about Steve and why and how the group at UMKC was very interested in him. It is part of this bringing people together and bringing coalitions together and understanding uh, his, his focus on communities and the role of a medical center in its region or in its, uh, in, in its cities. Um, among the other things he's done, uh, he's a member of the American Medical Informatics Association and the Association for Medical Education in Europe. He was presented by that association with the Patil Award for the Best Medical Education Research in 2007. He was editor-in-chief of Academic Medicine, which is the peer-reviewed journal of the AAMC. And in 2013, he was awarded the Merrill Flair Award, the highest honor awarded by the AAMC's group on educational affairs. You can see his achievements in the areas of clinical medicine, medical informatics, medical education, scholarly investigation and publication, and medical school administration. We are really delighted to have him here, and I hope his son is too. John is a, is a resident in neurosurgery here at uh, Dartmouth, and uh, wonderful to have John here, wonderful to have his dad come and visit and to teach us a little bit today about charting a rational course for the future of medical education. Please join me in welcoming Steve Cantor. Well, good morning, uh, everyone. Can you hear me uh, well in the back? Um, and thank you, um, Dr. Rothstein, for that very, uh, very thorough introduction. I don't ever remember having such a thorough introduction. It probably means you're an outstanding internist. And um, I, I really appreciate that. I haven't thought about high school in some 40 to 50 years, so I appreciate that. Um, uh, also, I want to say hello to Joe O'Donnell, who sent me a very nice note and uh, said that he is uh, watching this uh, live stream. He's in Martha's Vineyard. And um, uh, when Joe found out my son was coming here, he also sent me a, a lovely note. And uh, he used the phrase, in loco parentis. He said, you know, if you, if you can't function as a parent, then 
and uh, Joe is there. So I sent him uh, my son's car insurance bill, and um, uh, we'll we'll see how what happens. Um, so um, so I did not leave uh, neurosurgery by choice. I developed psoriatic arthritis and. It destroyed joints in my hands and wrists and other places, and I had to uh, move to uh, other kinds of things. It led me down a different path. And you know, life is interesting. Uh, I, I don't think you're you're judged necessarily by what happens to you, but uh, most often, I think you're judged by how you respond to uh, what happens to you. And uh, I've received a number of uh, calls over the years from other uh, physicians and scientists who've uh, had various things happen to them, and somehow they find out what happened to me. And uh, that's been very, very interesting to, uh, and a privilege to hear what uh, other people are uh, struggling with. And uh, just to give you a quick example, I was thinking, you know, did I ever get a call from an internist? And yes. Uh, and a lot of these things are tough to talk about because, you know, people uh, want them to be very confidential. But I did get uh, one nephrologist who uh, came to me. He uh, was developing Parkinson's disease. And uh, his question was, you know, w when should I stop putting central lines in? And that's a very interesting and complex question. Uh, physicians don't have, you know, treating physicians don't have the answers to those kinds of questions. And uh, so we, we had an interesting discussion and it led to some decisions. But anyway, uh, we, that's a, a whole other issue. Uh, as um, you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I went down a different path, ended up doing a number of things that I might not have uh, been able to do otherwise, including I led a team that uh, built a medical school in the Republic of Kazakhstan. Uh, I've done some consulting for governments of Macedonia and Rwanda um, and uh, Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean. When I was uh, in Turks and Caicos, I would, got up and got dressed, put a suit and tie on, went to meet with the government officials, the minister of, of this and that. and. I walked in the room and they were all in shorts. You know, it was uh, very interesting. Um, so uh, appreciate the opportunity to come here, though, and, and especially, uh, you know, I've been spending a lot of time developing this health sciences district and working on relationships between the medical school and uh, hospitals and a state psychiatric facility and a county medical examiner's office and a city health department and so forth. Very interesting issues, brings me in contact with elected officials and uh, others. It's been a lot of fun. So I, when I got the call to do this, I appreciate it because it gave me a chance to step back and, and reflect uh, again on medical education. So I thought what we could do is take a very broad-based look at, uh, at medical education looking for, oh, there's the clock, okay. So uh, a very broad-based look at medical education and hopefully a very critical look at, uh, at medical education. Uh, and let's see, let's, um, um, I, I thought, you know, first, now I, I've lived in uh, many places around the country and I know how people view other places in the country, so I thought we should start out talking about where is Kansas City. Uh, but then maybe uh, we could move from there to consider um, uh, thinking about what does current practice in medical education reveal about our underlying beliefs. And a way to think about this is if, if there was someone from another galaxy who looked down at Earth and was charged with understanding medical education, they couldn't talk to us, but they looked at what we were doing. They looked at the structure and function of medical education. Uh, what would that tell them about what our beliefs were, what some of our fundamental philosophical thinking was about medical education? And then we'll talk a little uh, bit about how metaphors uh, shape our beliefs and how they can help us think. Uh, and, and I'll talk, I'll, I'll say medical education and I'll focus a lot on medical student education, but all of the ideas and concepts are easily applied to uh, any health professions education and certainly residency programs. And then we'll talk a little bit about the kinds of things that threaten our effectiveness when we try to uh, think 
about uh, a rational course for the future, and then we'll try to chart a little bit of a course and see what you think. So where is Kansas City? Uh, well, uh, that's a map of Missouri. I-70 runs through the center of it. St. Louis is on the east. Columbia and Jefferson City, the capital, are in the middle, and Kansas City's in the west. Kansas City straddles the state line, so there's a Kansas City, Missouri, and a Kansas City, Kansas. The Kansas City Royals are actually a Missouri uh, team, and um, uh, the University of Missouri has four fairly independent universities throughout the state, one in St. Louis, one in Rolla, one in Columbia, uh, and one in uh, Kansas City. The University of Missouri has two medical schools, one in Columbia, which is a traditional four-year, uh, you know, U.S.-style medical school, and one in Kansas City, where I am, which is uh, actually a British-style six-year uh, medical school. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Um, now, it turns out that Missouri is the state that is uh, bordered by more states than any other state in the United States. Uh, so the question, of course, I'll give you a little quiz here. There may be one or two people who have to recuse themselves from this. Uh, but uh, uh, what can anybody name the states? Iowa. Iowa is good. This is a sharp group, you know. So. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm hearing. All right, let's see. Um, there's Iowa. There's Nebraska. Somebody got that. Kansas. Oklahoma. Um, Arkansas. I'm not sure I heard that one. Tennessee borders Missouri, and Kentucky, and Illinois. Uh, so there's a, you, you can uh, quiz your residents later today. And uh, so uh, geography is, is interesting. Of course, people who live there look at the Northeast and, you know, see it and so forth and so on. Um, that's what it looks like from a little bit larger perspective. You really are right in the center of the country. The geographic center of the United States is, is uh, just a little west of Kansas City. Um, there's a monument there. Now, if you need to go to Kansas City, you, have, you drop down to I-70 uh, and, and take a right. Um, that's pretty much it. And uh, if you're interested in the total eclipse, uh, that path goes right through the center of Missouri, so now you know how to get there. And uh, it, when you arrive in Kansas City, you will see the downtown uh, area. Uh, Kansas City has a, a, a lot of wealth, a lot of philanthropy. Um, let me see if I can point to. Uh, so H&R so, uh, Block headquarters is one of those downtown buildings. Uh, Henry Block is uh, about 93 years old. I had lunch with him. Very friendly and approachable and accessible. Very uh, generous to uh, the area. Um, this building right here uh, is the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts. Marion Ewing Kaufman was the gentleman who uh, went into his garage and started scraping uh, oyster shells to, uh, to get calcium. And, uh, and he scraped uh, a lot of oyster shells and, and developed OSCAL, right, oyster shell calcium, and, uh, and did very well with that, ended up uh, making enough money to purchase the Kansas City Royals. He was the owner of the Royals for a while. And again, very generous to the, uh, to the area and uh, with his daughter contributing significantly to building that performing arts center. Uh, if you... You're looking north here. If you turn a little bit east, you see uh, what is now the Health Sciences District. There are about 10 institutions there. When I got there three years ago, I went around and talked to the leaders of each of the institutions and talked to them about how do you plan together? How do, how do you think together? We, you share a geographic area. How do you solve problems together? And, and uh, there are good people there, and they work very hard, and there were a lot of pairwise agreements among the different institutes. The School of Medicine had an agreement with the adult hospital. The adult hospital had an agreement with the children's hospital and so forth. 
And one of the things I've been working on is informing this district is getting everybody in the same room once a month around the table, the, the hospital CEOs, the deans of the various schools, the health department director and so forth. And uh, it's generated a fair amount of, of interest and we're, we're making good progress on pulling that. A very interesting exercise to uh, think about. So uh, I mentioned that uh, the School of Medicine in Kansas City is a, a six-year program. We take 110 students a year right out of high school. You know, most of the world has six-year uh, medical schools or seven-year programs. There are a couple of five-year programs. There's one in Singapore, for example. Um, and, and a couple of things happen when you have a six-year program and take students right out of high school. Uh, one is you end up with more women than men in your class because uh, the women are more mature at 17 and 18 than men and in terms of making a long-term commitment to something like medicine. So we end up with about 60% women. Uh, if you look in Europe, you'll see 70%. If you look in Russia, you'll see 80% women in, in medical schools. Uh, we have a smaller four-year track, just the way a lot of the traditional programs in the U.S. and Canada, which are four have a, a smaller uh, accelerated track. We have a um, number of other programs, in physician assistant program and anesthesia assistant program. Now, anesthesia assistant uh, is a profession that uh, is only uh, licensed in 17 states in the U.S., uh, they are different than nurse anesthetists. Um, anesthesia assistants uh, don't have as, as much autonomy as a nurse anesthetist, have to work more closely with the anesthesiologist. And so Vermont, for example, will license an anesthesia assistant. New Hampshire uh, will not. Um, we talk a lot about interprofessional education these days and what it means and, um, and the need for better teamwork. I would say that we are at the, at the very, very beginning of thinking about those kinds of things. Uh, we're, we are probably primitive in the way we approach that because right now I think if I ask the question, what's the difference between an anesthesiologist, a nurse anesthetist, an anesthesia assistant, an anesthesia technologist, and an anesthesia technician, that uh, maybe nobody in the room could really identify differences uh, among all of those uh, professions. And of course, there are healthcare professions in other areas, like there are pathology assistants, and then you look at radiology and you've got a number of So maybe one, one thing we need to do in interprofessional education is educate ourselves and really understand the broad range of healthcare professions. And so when we're talking to somebody in some area of the hospital or some corner of a clinic that we really understand what the, what the issues are. Um, the, when you have a six-year program, um, uh, you have to take care of the students a little differently than you do in a typical four-year program. Though they are two years younger on average. When they start as first years, they're actually about four years younger than a first-year medical student, but if you think about it, by the time they hit third year, they're two years younger. Um, the um, uh, so, so, and that's a big, big difference in maturity, you know, at those uh, ages. So we, we have an apprenticeship system. Students go into what we call docent teams, 12 students and one uh, faculty member. Students are paired so that senior students are always teaching the more junior students. Uh, our students see uh, outpatients one half day a week from year three through six, the equivalent of year one through four, uh, half day a week with their docent. Uh, docents are internists. That was a decision made 50 years ago when the school was started. The docents are internists, and our students have two months of inpatient DORO, they call it, docent rotation, with their internist docent in years four, five, and six. So our students graduate with six months of internal medicine. Uh, it, it's a, I think it's an excellent approach. Um, I'll tell you why in a minute. But I would say it's the best of apprenticeship learning combined with mentoring, peer teaching, group learning. Um, each student has a small office in the school. We have 400 offices in the medical school for students. 
And if you wish to name one of those offices, it's $10,000 donation. Uh, just in case there are any alums uh, around, it's, you know, f five easy payments of $2,000 a year. Um, so this is a picture of uh, students in a docent unit. Well, you'll notice that they look very young because they are very young, younger than what you're used to seeing. Um, uh, the, if you look, um, these are the student offices right, right here. Here's another one. Um, students like to write on doors and walls, so we made them all erasable. And, um, uh, and when you walk through, it's interesting, you'll hear, um, and, and, and faculty members' labs are also right in the middle of these things. So when you walk through, you'll see a group of students talking about a patient. You'll see one of the basic scientists standing there getting engaged in the conversation. So it's an interesting social model of how, how uh, a curriculum can work. The school graduates, the, the school's graduates, many, have gone on to major leadership positions throughout the United States. And I'm just going to show you, you don't have to read all of this, I'll just show you a few quick to give you an idea. Uh, but Mark Ettinger, a Surgeon General of the U.S. Air Force, Karen Remling, CEO of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the first woman CEO of the American Academy of Pediatrics. My wife is a pediatrician. I asked her why it took so long. To, I mean, it's the Academy of Pediatrics to have a woman, but Karen is the first woman CEO. Um, uh, Alan Braverman is an endowed professor at WashU, a world expert in Marfan syndrome. Tom Toth is at Harvard, uh, directing their reproductive endocrinology uh, unit. Uh, Kathy Spong is Deputy Director of NICHD. Uh, Lisa Fitzpatrick is very active in uh, global public health uh, efforts, PEPFAR and, and other projects. So, you know, it's an interesting question when I got there three years ago. Why did a medical school originally designed to educate primary care physicians for Missouri and the Midwest end up 45 years later with graduates in major leadership positions around the country? And, and it's not just a few, it's uh, about 15% of the graduates are in these major leadership positions. So um, I, we had a, uh, an emeritus professor who is trained as a sociologist and under the impression she was retired and uh, I said to her, why don't you figure out why uh, this is occurring here? And so she did hour long, you know, she developed a, a qualitative phenomenological study and and interviewed 48 of these people, hour-long interviews. And there are several uh, issues here, but one interesting issue is a story that we heard over and over again was that um, uh, because the students had the six months of internal medicine, because they had a half day a week of outpatient clinic, a lot of them ended up being very good clinically. And when they got into residency, they were noticed by their peers, by their program directors, by their faculty. They stood out. Now, it averaged, you know, it starts to homogenize after a little bit, but they stood out. They got noticed. And because they got noticed, they were offered some other opportunity. And if they did well, they were offered the next opportunity. And we think that's uh, an interesting factor in uh, what led to so many of them ending up in these, uh, in these major pos uh, positions. So um, let's talk a little bit about what current practice reveals about what we believe. And um, so, uh, we talked a little bit about this already, but if you look at the issue of readiness for medical school and you were looking at it from uh, outside uh, the planet Earth, you would look down and say, huh, it looks like students in most of the world are ready for medical school right after high school or the equivalent, but for some reason in the U.S. and Canada, they're not, and they need four years of, of college first. Now, I don't mean to say anything bad about four years of college. It's really important. You, you know, I mean, I could argue all day why four years of college is, is really critical. Um, uh, but other people could argue that, uh, you know, other countries have been very successful with taking students right out of, out of high school. And, uh, you know, their, their uh, longevity is better. Their, you know, their neonatal mortality is less, you know, all of those kinds of things. So it's an interesting... Um, issue, and, and my 
point is that it's important for us to take a very critical look at these kinds of things. You know, now I, I don't want to bring up uh, f uh, whether or not there's a physician shortage here at Dartmouth because I think there are people with very specific views about that here. But um, but you know, if you say there's a shortage of physicians, or or if some people say it takes too long or it's too expensive to to train a physician, you know, we, we need to think carefully about this. Uh, admissions processes, if you looked at what we do in the United States, you would come to the conclusion that we put the rights of the state ahead of the rights of individual applicants. And um, if you think about it, you could have a student from state A who has good credentials but doesn't get into medical school in that state. And that student, that applicant, may have better credentials than most of the folks in state B who actually got into medical school in state B, but that student couldn't get in because he or she was an out-of-state applicant. That right there, you know, there, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, political and social reasons for that, but if we're going to be, be critical, take a critical look at what we do, you conclude that, yeah, the process is state-centric. It's not student or, or applicant-centric. Um, and I'll propose in a minute what we could do about that. Um, tuition is an interesting issue. Uh, you know, you'd say, gee, even though society needs physicians, U.S. students should finance a large portion of their education, and it's acceptable for them to have an average debt of $180,000 uh, when they graduate. Now, that varies, of course, around the world. Different governments subsidize the cost of medical education. You know, if you look in Denmark, it costs students very little to go to medical school. Italy, it costs very little. Um, uh, so there are a lot of factors to uh, think about with that. Uh, if you looked at teaching around the country, you'd, you'd have to say, yeah, there's still a whole lot of people that believe teaching is providing information uh, to learners rather than stimulating them to think and broadening their perspectives. If you look at, at learner-teacher relationships, certainly at the medical school level, it sort of starts to go away in residence. Maybe, not, maybe even internship, you hear people refer to interns as kids too. You know, and I know as we get older, it's, it's tempting to do that. Um, but it reveals an underlying belief that uh, may or may not be moving us in a good direction. Uh, we, we'd have to conclude that um, it's not that important to invest in developing assessments of critical thinking or clinical reasoning. There are some things going on, but you know, a whole lot of what we do still tests retention of knowledge. Now, maybe I'm being overly critical. I'd be very interested to hear what, what you think. Um, we'd have to say, it's not important to assess the learner's emotional and moral development, and yet the administrators in the room uh, can probably tell story after story of dealing with students, residents, and faculty who are at different stages of emotional and moral development, or maybe who experience a setback in uh, their emotional and moral development and, and uh, require some uh, assistance to move forward and, and continue to be successful. Uh, interprofessional education, uh, you know, you'd look around the country, you'd say, gee, they think that lecturing to students in a large lecture hall can lead to improved teamwork because that's, you know, a very common response. You put all of the students in the same big room and you talk to them. Uh, when I, I meet with students and residents once a month to try to stay in touch, you know, people tell you less and less as you move up, right? So I try to stay in touch and, and hear what's going on. And when I say to them, hey, how's, you know, how's this interprofessional stuff going, you know, the, the team learning, and, and they kind of look at me, and I say, you know, IPE, and they say, is that where they, like, make us sit next to the dental students for a while? And so, you know, that response tells me that we are not at all where we need to be. We know that teamwork is critically important for uh, good patient care. There's uh, mounting evidence that better teamwork leads to safer patient care and, and better outcomes. Uh, the link between what you do to prepare people to work in those teams, the education part of it, to, is not quite there yet. And uh, so that's an opportunity for research. That's an opportunity for some innovative thinking. 
Uh, and if you look at the neighborhoods in which medical schools sit, you would conclude that the faculty of a medical school as a whole do not feel responsible for the health of neighborhoods surrounding their school. And in fact, I would say um, the most common response I see of medical schools to the neighborhoods around them is to do two things. Uh, they hire security guards and they build fences. And, um, and that's not the only option though, right? You could take a different philosophic stance and say, because we exist in this particular geographic location, the health of the people in the zip codes around us should be better than whatever benchmark you want to use than the state or the nation or than some number. Uh, and we're doing some things along those lines. I've been proposing that um, uh, to the leaders of the other institutions that, you know, we, we could take that position and try to make a difference. And so it, we're look, looking at some very interesting things. So, and you know, these, these beliefs that I'm putting forth, I, I don't mean to say they're arbitrary, they evolved for various reasons. And so if we take teaching and learning as a, as a quick example and, um, and put it in a historical context, now I'm, this is gonna be 1500 years of history in 15 seconds, I apologize to those of you who uh, are, are history majors or have an interest in this. But, you know, after the Middle Ages is when knowledge began to be organized in a more rational way, when it became independent of any uh, individual um, monk or whoever it was. Uh, and, and it began to be organized in a way that was determined by the structure of the subject itself. So disciplines were developed and taxonomies were developed. And, and with all of that, the task of the teacher was to transmit that knowledge to the learner, to protect the knowledge, preserve it, and transmit it to the learner. And this notion of teachers transmitting information and students receiving information then influenced education for centuries, right? Uh, you could argue maybe right up until the middle of the 20th century. And so it's... Um, and, and obviously this transmission reception concept is inadequate because it sees the learner as passive. Um, you know, memorization and drill can replace meaningful experience. And, and knowledge, it says knowledge and learning can be isolated from real world context. Uh, and I won't go through all the, you know, the new theories, but you, you know, people began to say, okay, well maybe learning is change in behavior, maybe learning is construction of meaning, maybe it's social construction of meaning and so forth. So it's interesting, you could graph the task of the learner versus the task of the teacher. And so uh, in this slide on the x-axis is the task of the learner, on the left, the task is simply to acquire information, on the right is to construct meaning. The task of the teacher is on the y-axis at the bottom, the teacher's task is to provide information. Uh, at the top it's to broaden and deepen understanding and then you could populate this. Um, and so in the bottom left-hand corner where the teacher is providing information and the learner is acquiring it, uh, you have a notion of the learner as a blank slate or a child. Um, the teacher is the source of information. The relationship is paternalistic. And the theories are what we talked about. If you go into the upper right, uh, where the task of the teacher is to broaden and deepen understanding and the task of the learner is to construct meaning, uh, then you've got a learner who's a prime slate, an adult learner. Uh, you have a teacher who is a catalyst for critical thinking. Uh, and so forth. Now, I didn't put lecture on, on this slide because lecture could really be anywhere, right? Um, I mean, a lot of lectures are in that lower left-hand corner, and that's a problem. Um, but lecture could be anywhere. You know, I hope today to stimulate your thinking in new ways about medical education. If, if I succeed, you'll be driving home today and you'll think of new things that you hadn't thought about before. Um, and you know, in 2017, what I hear learners saying to us is we no longer need you as a source of information. Don't stand up there and tell me the branches of the external carotid artery or whatever it is, branches of the aorta. Uh, we can find what we need on the web when we need it, at the pace we need it, and in the format we need it. That's why what I hear the students 
You know, you listen to students, they'll tell you, you know, they're either visual learners or auditory or kinematic learners. Some people have to move to learn. They cannot learn when they sit still. Um, it's interesting. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and the, I also hear them saying that they, they want to understand how we think, how we use information to generate good questions and solve problems. Uh, you, you know, those of you who do research, you generate questions every day, and when you do that, you're immediately eliminating thousands of questions that are either not answerable or not relevant or not useful. But when you listen to uh, students and residents who are just beginning to think about problems in medicine and science, one of the things they don't know how to do is eliminate those other kinds of questions. And that's why it's so valuable for them to try to understand how it is we do that. Um, and, of course, need to understand how to evaluate the quality of information, um, you know, given the, the web and, you know, fake news and all of that. Um, so let's talk a minute about metaphors um, and how they can um, help us uh, think about medical education. So the classic book on metaphors is Metaphors We Live By by uh, George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. Uh, Lakoff was a linguist, Johnson a philosopher. Has anybody read this book? I see maybe one or two hands. It's an interesting read. Um, <clears throat> one of the things they talk about in the book is that uh, if, you, if you think about argument, uh, the underlying metaphor that we use for argument is war, right? And, but war is not the only metaphor you can use to understand argument. And, and they go on to argue that metaphors are, are a fundamental part of the conceptual system uh, that our minds use to think. So, so it not only affects then what we think, but it affects what we do and how we act. So... You know, argument is war. We talk about winning and losing an argument. We talk about demolishing the opponent. Um, you know, all of the things you can think of uh, about, you know, argument as, as war. But another metaphor you could use to understand argument, for example, uh, would be dance. Uh, you could imagine an argument as this uh, graceful interaction between two individuals who are uh, engaging to seek the truth. <clears throat> and uh, so, and as you start to think about that, uh, it, it starts to change how you act, to change, change how you would measure an outcome. Uh, my wife and I were, you know, having one of those arguments. We've been married 33 years, and, you know, it was one of those, you know what, you know what? And, and um, I said to her, wait a minute, I, wait a minute, this is, this is not a war here. This is a dance. This is a beautiful thing. We are, uh, we are engaging gracefully so that we end up at the truth. Uh, it didn't go very well. So, you know, so, so, so but, but, but the point is it can be useful. And, um, and you know, certainly cancer is war, right? There's, there's uh, uh, a lot of reasons we think about people battling cancer. There's an interesting piece in the New York Times, I think by Arthur Kaplan, about John McCain's uh, glioblastoma and whether it's right or whether it's ethical or not to talk about him winning that war and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I'm certainly not at war with my arthritis. I would say I dance with it. The arthritis leads you know, you try to be as graceful as possible, but the arthritis leads. So, so dance is a better metaphor for, for something like that. Um, and uh, these other quotes from uh, Lakoff and Johnson uh, just reinforce what I said, that uh, the, the last one, you know, they say, if we are right in suggesting that our conceptual system is largely metaphorical, then the way we think, what we experience, and what we do every day is a matter of metaphor. So, okay, learner-teacher relationship. You know, the common metaphor is a parent-child relationship, but a collaborative relationship, if you start to think of it that way, and you change how you speak and you refrain from talking about students and interns as kids, 
um, uh, you, it opens up new possibilities. Uh, learning, common metaphor might be receiving, constructing meaning gives you uh, some new potential, some new power to do some other kinds of things. When we talk about educational programs, uh, we don't even think about it, but we use manufacturing metaphors, right? We, this, this institution produces outstanding doctors. This institution produces good nurses. This institution, you know, that kind of, of uh, language. Uh, and, and is that really what we want? Is that really what we believe? Is there a, another metaphor that would uh, provide new potential for us? So agricultural metaphors, for example, the notion of cultivating learners, the no, um, you know, a, a more growth and development kind of metaphor. If you, it's, it's can be difficult to do this, but if you, if you, uh, work with yourself and you change the way you speak about these kinds of things, it starts to change the way you see it and changes the outcomes you'd measure. If you're thinking of manufacturing and production, you're thinking of certain kinds of outcomes. If you're using agricultural metaphors and looking at growth and development, you'd be measuring uh, a whole new set of indicators. Uh, the admissions processes, you know, the underlying metaphor is gatekeeping, right? So, um, some of us stand at the gate, uh, the applicant comes, presents their credentials, we look at them and we decide whether to open the gate or not to uh, open the gate. Is that the only metaphor for uh, thinking about admissions processes? Well, you could think about bridge building. You know, you could have a system where once you uh, engage with an applicant, it becomes uh, the, the task to get them to begin to build a bridge to get them where they uh, need to be, get them in a, into a good place. Uh, that's a, a challenge in, in higher education in general right now, um, thinking about you know, a whole variety of issues, including the fact that individuals from lower socioeconomic groups aren't ending up in, in college in the same numbers and you know, those issues. Uh, so, as we update our beliefs and actions, what are threats to our effectiveness? Well, one threat is failure to correctly define the problem, and, and everybody's heard about Flexner, and if you read Flexner's um, original writings, uh, you find that, that one of his strengths was the ability to describe merits and faults uh, very, very accurately. He was uh, incisive, he was trenchant, he was, you know, very clear. And that enabled people to define problems uh, better, and that led to uh, change, although there's some changes before Flexner. The other th uh, thing I think about is the waiting room. So, so, so far, and as of 2017, no uh, physician or anybody else on the healthcare team has been able to figure out how to have a physician see a patient at the appointed time, right? Um, and maybe the first patient of the day, but otherwise you can't see any of the patients at the appointed time. So we, we build a waiting room. And uh, then patient satisfaction scores aren't that great, and patients say they don't want to wait, and they want, and so, uh, you know, they want to see patients at the, they want to see physicians at the appointed time. So, uh, we put televisions in the waiting room, okay? And so then patient satisfaction scores are a problem, and patients say, but I want to see the doctor at the appointed time. So we put an espresso machine in the waiting room, right? And so the problem is that uh, we need a system where patients can see doctors at the appointed time, but what we're doing is making the waiting room nicer. So it's an interest, you know, whenever I'm looking at some complex problem and we're trying to solve it, I think, okay, do we really understand the problem we're trying to solve here, or are we just trying to make the waiting room nicer? Now, I understand why we can't see patients, so they put it, you know, it's a complex issue. But it's an interesting way to think about that. Uh, tyranny of numbers, I won't say much about. Everybody knows, understands that uh, they exert more control than is warranted, and that sometimes can, you know, focus us down on details instead of the larger issues. Mandates from state legislatures um, uh, threaten our ability to think clearly about how to move forward. Every, every day there are state legislators who put proposals in that uh, would um, force 
uh, all of us to do things with students or residents. So uh, an example is uh, there uh, is, was a state legislator in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, and you know they have the best uh, state legislators money can buy in Pennsylvania. So uh, no, let's see, we maybe take that out of the tape, you know. Uh, but um, but there was a legislator who. who uh, proposed every year that each medical school in the state would be required to uh, get to uh, have a certain percentage of the class go into certain primary care specialties. And so, uh, you know, to some folks that made sense, but to us knowing how the system, you know, you, you kind of couldn't make that work. There are uh, proposals out there that to require uh, medical schools to post on the homepage of their websites uh, the percent of students in each year who are depressed. Uh, now, that, that's extremely difficult and really impossible to do accurately and, you know, so forth and so on, all kinds of ethical issues and other problems with that. But these proposals are out there, and um, uh, I can tell you if, if we all don't have a voice, there are other voices trying to do a variety of things. Um, the notion of groupthink, people are probably familiar with that. It's the mismanagement of disagreement, uh, you know, suppression of dissenting viewpoints uh, by a group which limits our thinking. Um, usually there's uh, some desire for harmony or, or conformity, harmony or conformity that trumps a critical assessment of ideas. The Abilene Paradox, described by Jerry Harvey in 1974, is a little different. The Abilene Paradox is the mismanagement of agreement. So groupthink is the mismanagement of disagreement. The Abilene Paradox is the mismanagement of agreement. Uh, Jerry Harvey's uh, wife was from Coleman, Texas, which is an hour outside of Abilene. They were visiting her parents. It was 104 degrees. They were sitting on the porch, and her father said, uh, let's drive to Abilene and get ice cream. And, uh, you know, you want to go? You want to go to Abilene and get ice cream? Uh, it was 104 degrees. They had a Buick with no air conditioning. And the daughter said, oh, okay, Dad, yeah, let's go get ice cream. She wanted to please her dad. And then uh, so Jerry himself said, yeah, okay, she wanted to please his wife. And they said to the mother, you want to go? Oh, sure. And they all got in the car, and they drove an hour in 104 degrees to Abilene. They got ice cream and drove back. And when they got back, they, you know, tired and hot and started complaining. And they began to realize that, you know, the, the father said, well, he didn't really want to go. He was just doing it for the other. And the point is that you had four, you know, rational, intelligent people, thinking people, none of whom wanted to get in the car and drive to Abilene and get ice cream, but they did. And so uh, Jerry Harvey wrote this interesting paper in 1974, called it the Abilene Paradox. He's a, a management science professor at GW, and he said this is one of the things he sees happening in businesses and corporations, uh, you know, that he consults for, uh, that it's not, it's not groupthink, which is a little different. It's this notion of inability to manage agreement. Um, he says the inability to manage agreement, not the inability to manage conflict, is the essential symptom that defines organizations caught in the web of the Abilene paradox. Um, you know, each person mistakenly believes that his or her own preferences are counter to the, to the groups, and so uh, don't raise objections. Uh, and organizations take actions in contradiction to the data they have for dealing with problems and as a result, compound their uh, problems. So, you know, if you can diagnose that the Abilene Paradox is, um, is your problem, it can help you, you know, move, move forward. So let's see if uh, in a minute or two here we can chart a... Now, you won't, you won't buy all of this, but I'm going to do it, and then I'd be very interested to hear what you think. So, you know, if we believe that medical school admissions processes should be as fair as possible to all applicants then it should be student-centric or applicant-centric. Uh, it should maximize opportunities for students, and one way to approach that might be a national system for admission to medical school like the match. Um, you know, if we believe it takes too long to educate a physician, we could create more uh, six-year slots. 
If we believe that technology has enabled students to acquire the information they need um, and in a matter that aligns with their learning styles, uh, then we should accept that the teacher is no longer a uh, primary source of information. We should implement new ways to help students learn to think critically. And, and I know we do this to some extent, but there's a lot of opportunity there to do it better. And we should develop better ways to assess critical thinking and clinical reasoning. And let me just say a word about that. We, we need better ways to assess clinical reasoning. If, if right now we were assigned the task of um, testing individuals, let's say, to determine if someone was an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist. And we're not allowed, and we, we have someone walk in the room, and we don't know which one they are, okay? And we're not allowed to ask them about their educational background, and we can't say to them, are you, a you know, an anesthesiologist or a nurse anesthetist? All we can do is administer a test, any kind of test we want, multiple choice, writing, a computer simulation. And, and um, there is no assessment instrument out there that can reliably distinguish those levels of expertise. If you read the expertise literature, it's extremely difficult to uh, distinguish levels of expertise with any of the kinds of instruments we have now. And yet, these kinds of things are very important. I've been involved in a number of these scope of practice discussions. If we had the ability to, you know, some kind of instrument to test somebody so we could distinguish levels of expertise, it could help inform scope of practice. And instead of scope, you know, when you, when you listen to scope of practice discussions, uh, the top three issues on the table are number one, money, number two, money, and number three, money, right? The interest of the patient and, the, you know, or not. Uh, so, so if we had better, if we could invest in better ways to assess clinical reasoning specifically to distinguish levels of expertise, uh, that could move us forward. Um, if we believe moral and emotional development are important, we ought to be able to develop good ways to track that and identify opportunities for remediation and growth. A restorative process, I think, is, is the way to go. Certainly, if you sit in a hospital, rehabilitation and restoration is what you believe in. Um, if we believe that medical schools should improve the health of their neighbors, we should track health outcomes and health literacy measures in the zip codes that surround us and see if we can make a difference. Uh, and if we believe that tuition should be free and debt should be minimal, uh, then we should implement education service exchange initiatives to finance all health professions education with ease of crossing state and national boundaries. So I'll put that out there for you to uh, think about. I am going to, yes, I'm going to Kansas City at night. Um, I'm going to stop there and uh, say uh, thank you very much again for uh, inviting me here and, and um, uh, really appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with all of you and talk about some of these ideas. And I hope it does stimulate you to think in uh, new ways about uh, what you're doing with students and residents. Thank you. question about 90 miles up the road there's a lot of news lately about the University of Vermont stopping all lectures for their medical students and Joel Alpert in writing in the American Journal of Medicine that he edits recently in the last few years wrote that medical school should be three years long not four years long greatly truncating lots of opportunities because in the third year they'd be seeking residencies uh, and take away from even the third year how should we assess the outcome of those changes? You advocate for some changes like truncating the college experience. Perhaps that works. But how, going forward, should we methodically think about these changes that, that many are now starting to bring forward? Sure. All right. I'll, I'll tell you what I think, but feel free to disagree. You know, there are uh, – and, and I don't mean to – advocate for no college. I, you know, college is critically important for many individuals. I don't think I myself would have been ready for medical school at 17 or 18. Uh, so, so, you know, I'm just showing that as uh, to be critical of what we do. The issue of lectures is interesting. You know, um, 
you, you know, bad lectures are bad and good lectures are good. And, and you, you know, if, um, if there are some uh, faculty, let's say you've got to read this very difficult chapter on whatever it is that caused you trouble, some aspect of endocrinology or something, and it's going to take you four hours to slog through this chapter, but you go to a lecture and this faculty member who all the students love gives this lecture and and lays the framework out for you and puts your mind in a different place. So then you can read that chapter, you know, in 20 minutes. And, and so that's a very valuable lecture. So saying that lectures are bad and just getting rid of them, I don't think is a universal answer to our uh, problems. And, you know, the three-year issue I, I saw, I was... Um, uh, teasing some folks I know uh, who, um, you know, they're talking about this three-year medical school as a new three-year medical schools have been around for many, many decades, you know, and, and um, some students are ready to graduate in three years. I've certainly seen students over the years who do a lot of maturing during that fourth year of medical school. So, you know, and, and I know people talk about competency-based and we'll just graduate students when they're ready. It's interesting conceptually, but to try to implement that, I mean, you know, that's... Uh, so, I, you know, it, it, I think it requires some careful thought and wisdom, you know, not quite ready to throw things out. You want... Thank you for the talk. I was wondering if you could comment if you read, um, you know, cognitive neuroscience studies in these days. People are thinking that we're in our mid-20s, 26 or so, before prefrontal cortex is matured. And so when we think about having students go to medical school where they're making moral and ethical decisions, is there an advantage to having it be later? And, you know, not so much that they're children, but that they're still adolescents and that there may be something that is valuable about having that yeah, very, you know, very interesting, certainly. And there are probably people here who are uh, in that age range or very close to it. But, you know, people mature at different uh, rates. And, um, you know, uh, for a lot of people, big changes occur around 29, 30. Um, it, it, yeah, it, interesting point. Thank you very much. Um, I went to Jefferson Medical School, and uh, we had an accelerated program like you have in the city. And you know, it, you know, it was good. It was really, uh, very bright students, but you know, there was a there was obviously you know, was some problems, especially about maturity. But the thing that kind of struck me about the, the lecture was the, the you know looking at the European experience and the fact that. Uh, there tended to be a higher enrollment of women in medical school because they enter earlier than in, with men. And so I was just curious as to what your feelings are about unintended consequences. You know, when I went to medical school, it was dominated by males. And what you're saying now is by having an earlier, having kids come in from high school that can be dominated by women. And I don't think that that's any better. So it's kind of nice to have a balance between males and females. So what's your... What's your take on that uh, that outcome that you were kind of talking about? Yeah, um, I have no idea. So, so uh, um, no, um, yeah, you know, I, I don't. I mean, you know, as a, these are interesting observations. I don't know that we really understand deeply why they occur and uh, maybe compounded by the fact that um, gender uh, we're learning, right, is not a binomial variable, and what that means for uh, moving forward. Um, you know, if you look at veterinary medicine schools around the United States right now, they're 80% women. And, you know, why is that, and what are the issues there? So I, I don't know. Interesting to, uh, it's an observation um, how uh, any group should intervene. I, you know, I, I don't know. Anybody have any good thoughts about it? It's a good issue. But. Having gone to medical school at the University of Washington, which serves the entire northern, northwestern quarter of the country, um, and is are all state schools um, part, of their, part of their network. Um, the legislatures 
provide very important funding and input um, to that organization. And in return, that that, uh, that network has um, traditionally been and continues to be one of the highest um, providers of primary care um, physicians, um, many of whom return to the area, uh, which much to the displeasure of Montana, I did not. Um, the, uh, and I think it's an important input to our medical education process to realize that community input, um, like those around the network uh, of your medical institutions um, in, in nearby, in, in nearby <coughs> often urban neighborhoods, um, are, is, very, is very important uh, um, feedback. Imperfect? Sure. But, uh, but, but critical uh, if you look at the distribution of healthcare um, and healthcare providers in this country. Yeah, yeah, interesting point. Well, I know that you've stimulated all of us to be thinking about our role in the education of our learners, and we welcome more questions up front, and thank you, Steve. For oh, oh thank you.